starting now. Black Clock Audio Tales, May 2019, Hawaiian Folklore and Legends, edited by Daniel Spitzer, music by Kevin McLeod. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to a rate podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button on pgttcm.podbean.com or by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And don't forget to visit pgttcm.com. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their new Dino Sound Slippers. Is that the name? They roar every third step. Very cool. Uni, the Peasant Prince of Hawaii, Part 5. As darkness settled upon the camp of the insurgents, Uni felt that the hour for action was closely at hand. He therefore gave orders that preparations for instant departure be maintained throughout the night. The moon was waning with a promise of rising sometime before morning, and the night sat in dark and cloudy with occasional showers. About two hours before midnight, Leo Leo suddenly and silently strode past the sentinels, seeking Umi he found him in council with his friends Omakamau, Pimewa, and the high priest. They were arranging the order of march by the four narrow paths at that time leading to Waipio. The giant stooped low and looked in upon the council through the doorway. He could scarcely distinguish the faces within by the light of the flambeau kept burning near the entrance. He did not attempt to enter, but stood silent and motionless, with his hands upon his knees, peering into the room as if to attract attention. Umi smiled as he recognized the huge object, and stepped to the door. The giant rose until his head was above the ridge pole and then bowed like the bending of a tree before the wind. Well, my good friend, said Umi, after thanking you for your last night's work, let me ask what word you bring. None, replied the giant. There is no light yet, but I am impressed that it will be seen before morning. And so am I, good Leo, returned the chief and your signal will find us prepared. That is what I came to learn, answered the giant, bowing and turning to depart. But do not mistake for a signal the rising moon, which will soon set its torch upon the hilltops, suggested Umi pleasantly. Unless the moon should rise in the west, which it has not done since the days of Maui, the mistake would scarcely be possible, replied Mauka Leo Leo, with a smile upon his great face, and then, with a few long strides, disappearing in the darkness. It must have been at about the time of this interview that Haku was leaving the Hiu at Waipio, after having invoked the auguries of sacrifice and listened to the voice of Nunu from the darkness of the inner temple, the king had scarcely passed the gate of the temple leading to the sacred pavement of Leola 
which connected the hue with the royal mansion and which privileged feet alone could tread when Nunu, after exchanging a few words with the high priest, also left the enclosure, but neither over the sacred pavement nor toward the palace. Taking a path which did not seem to be new to him, from the facility with which he traveled it by the light of the stars, he crossed the valley and mounted the high ridge of hills enclosing it on the southeast. Ascending the ridge for some distance, and until the lights of the valley could no longer be seen, he proceeded slowly upward, at intervals striking together two stones and listening for a response. At length it came, like an echo of his own signal, and a few minutes' walk brought him to a large heap of dry leaves and limbs, from behind which Kahoki rose and greeted him. Fire it at once, said Nunu. I will explain all when the signal is answered. Behind a rock, a few paces away, a small fire was smoldering. Kakohi sprang and seized a burning brand, which he applied to the heap, and in a moment the red flames reached heavenward, throwing a lurid light upon the surrounding hills. With their backs to the fire, the two priests looked anxiously toward the south and east, and in a few minutes, far in the distance, gleamed an answering fire. Satisfied that their signal had been seen and responded to, they permitted the fire to die out, and then returned to the valley to await the important events of the morrow. Leaving the rendezvous of the rebels, Maokaleoleo slowly returned to his station, for even his mighty limbs at times grew weary, and the path leading up the mountain was obscure and narrow. Reaching the summit, he examined a small fire hidden among the rocks, and was about to stretch himself upon the ground, with his face turned eastward, when he discerned a strange star-like speck upon the horizon. For a moment it paled, and then grew brighter and brighter. He stepped to a tree near a huge pile of combustibles, and glancing along a horizontal limb that had been previously trimmed for the purpose, discovered that it pointed directly toward the light. All doubt at once disappeared. He knew it was the signal. Springing for a brand, the heap was lighted, and by its wild glare in the darkness, Maokaleoleo rapidly descended to the valley. His fatigue had vanished, for the signal of Haiko's death had been lighted by his own hands, and his great heart was in arms. The signal was at once discerned by the watchman at Umi's quarters, and in a few minutes all was quiet commotion within the walls. Torches were lighted, armed warriors sprang with alacrity into line, and half an hour after Umi, in feather mantle and helmet, plumed with royal colors and preceded by the war god Akupau, borne upon a manae or palaquin, 
resting upon the shoulders of Kuhanus, with Kaulioku as high priest, marched out of the enclosure, followed by 2,000 well-armed and devoted supporters. His address to his warriors was brief. The moments are precious, said Umi, and must not be wasted in words. Let our spears speak, and at sunset tomorrow we will eat meat in peace in Waipio. As a measure of precaution, in case of disaster, a force sufficient to hold the premises of the high priest was left within the walls. The advancing army was formed into three divisions, the right commanded by Omakaumau and the left by Pimawa, while Umi remained with the center. Their orders were to move rapidly, but as quietly as possible, by three different routes, and form a junction at their intersection with the Alanui, or Great Path, leading from the coast to the inland village of Waimea. This junction, it was expected, the left division, traveling a difficult mountain path, would be able to reach two or three hours after sunrise. It was perhaps an hour short of midnight when the last of the little army left the enclosure, followed by two or three hundred women bearing food, water, extra weapons, and a variety of camp necessaries. The warriors were full of enthusiasm, and when Maokaleoleo stepped in among them from the mountains like a protecting deity, their shouts could scarcely be restrained. His appearance was most welcome to Umi, who thanked him warmly for what he had done, and expressed a desire that he would remain near him during the march, as his familiarity with the mountains and their paths would render his advice valuable. But I see another mighty friend has opportunely reported said Umi pleasantly, as he pointed toward the east. As the moon is about to look over the hills, the torches may soon be extinguished, for the paths will be plainer without them. The division separated, and dispensing with their torches, soon swarmed the several paths leading to Waipio. Each division was preceded some distance in its march by a party of scouts with instructions to let no one pass to their front, lest he might be a messenger of warning. The paths were rough and in places almost choked with undergrowth, and the advance was exceedingly laborious, but no word of complaint was heard, and about the middle of the forenoon, the left division and the last to arrive reached the Waimea Trail at a point leaving the entire force but a short march to Waipio. A brief halt was ordered, and the food and water brought by the women were served to the relatives and to others if any remained. Taking no thought of himself, Umi advised his attendants to eat if they could find food declaring that he required nothing, and then threw himself under the shade of a tree for a few minutes of much-needed rest. A cool breeze fanned his heated face, on which the beard 
had as yet grown but lightly, and his heavy eyelids closed, drooping him gently into the land of shadows, where he bathed in cool waters and partook of food that was delicious. More delicious it seemed because it was served by Kulamea. Something awoke him, he scarcely knew what, and his eyes caught the form of a woman as it vanished behind the tree under which he was lying. He smiled, and partially rising, discovered on the ground beside him a calabash of poi, reduced with water to the consistency of thick gruel. His mouth and throat were parched, and, without stopping to learn who had provided it, he raised the vessel to his lips and drained it to the bottom. It was a goodly draught, and refreshed him greatly. Holding the empty calabash in his hand, he began to examine it, at first carelessly, and then with greater interest, for it was not a common vessel, nor was it the first time he had seen it. It was the calabash he had carved with images of birds and flowers for Kulamea before he went to Waipio to become the son of a king. He beckoned to Maukaleoleo, who was leaning against a tree a few paces distant, with his head among the branches. The giant smiled as he approached, as if divining the question Umi was about to ask. Did you see the person who left this calabash? inquired Umi, exhibiting the vessel. I saw her, replied the giant. Then it was left by a woman? By a woman. Did you observe her? As closely as I ever observe any woman. What was her appearance? Ordinary men would describe her, I presume, as being young, graceful, and attractive. And you? I would call her a plaything, as I would any other woman whose head did not touch my beard. True, said Umi, smiling as his fancy pictured a becoming mate for the giant. You can know but little of woman, but would you recognize the plaything who left this calabash? Were you to see her again? The giant intimidated that he would probably recognize her. Then seek among the women of the camp, and, if found, say to her for Umi that if she prizes the calabash, he will return it to her. If she will claim it after the sun sets today, and show that she is the rightful owner. Makaleoleo bowed and departed on his errand, and Umi hung the calabash at his girdle. Another advance was ordered, and in an hour or less the little army lay hidden along the brow of the ragged hills overlooking the valley of Waipio, on the south and east and extending to the sea. A fleet messenger was dispatched over the hills to a waterfall, the sound of which could be heard dropping into the valley from a great height in an unbroken cataract. He returned, bringing with him a strangely marked piece of kappa, which he had found suspended from a limb near the verge of the fall. It was the final sign of Nunu, and implied that the king's attendants had been sent 
to the mountains and seashore, and the palace was defenseless. Preparations were made for an immediate descent into the valley. As the paths leading down were tortuous and narrow, the warriors were ordered to break ranks and make the descent as rapidly and as best as they could, and promptly reform on reaching the valley. The word was given, and the advance begun. First the summit bristled with spears, then down the hillside swept a swarm of armed men. In their rapid descent they seemed to be hopelessly scattered, but they reformed on reaching the valley, and in good order advanced toward the little stream, across which was the royal mansion, and not far from it the temple of Pakalani. The wildest excitement prevailed in the village. Some seized their arms, and others ran toward the hills, but no opposition was offered. At the head of the little army marched Umi, himself almost a giant, and by his side the mighty Makaleoleo, naked but for the marrow about his loins, and bearing a ponderous spear, the ivory point of which could be seen above the treetops. Plunging into and crossing the stream, detachments were dispatched at a running pace to surround the royal enclosure and cut off all escape, especially to the Puhonui. While with the main force, Umi advanced to the great gate of the outer wall, which had been hastily closed and fastened, and demanded a mission, no reply being made, although a confusion of voices could be heard from within Umi was about to order up a force to beat down the gate when Maokaleoleo leaned his spear against the wall and, laying hold of a rock which no two other men could lift, curled it against the gate and it was torn from its fastenings as if struck by a missile from Kilauea. He then seized the broken obstruction and flung it from the entrance as if it had been a screen of matting, and Umi and his followers poured into the enclosure, driving before them a score or two of hastily armed attendants of the king. They raised a wild battle shout and rushed toward the palace. So secret had been the movement of the insurgents and so rapid was their advance after reaching the valley that Haku was not made aware of their presence until they began to cross the stream near the royal mansion, the first information bewildering him. Recovering, he ordered the gates to be closed and barred, and everyone to arm within the grounds. A messenger was sent to mount the walls and report the probable number of the assailants, but the most of them were in the stream at the moment of observation, and the king was relieved with the assurance that the force did not number more than one or two hundred. Then we can beat them off until assistance comes, said Haiku confidently. Hold the gates with your lives, he shouted. Then hastily entering the mua, he took from the ipu in which it was deposited the kiapu, the sacred war trumpet of the Hawaiian kings, 
and sprang to the front of the palace. He placed the shell to his lips to sound a blast of alarm, which, with the breath of Lilola, was wont to swell throughout a radius of ten or twelve miles, filling his lungs for a mighty effort, which he doubted not would bring to his assistance the villagers and feather hunters dispatched to the hills, he wound a blast through the shell, but no such voice ever issued before from the mysterious chambers of the Kiapu. Instead of a note of alarm swelling over the hills in wild and warlike cadence, they gave forth a dreadful discord of torture-wrung screams and groans, horrifying all within the walls, but scarcely audible beyond them. Haku dropped the shell to the earth as if his lips had been burned with his kiss, and with a feeling of desperation seized a javelin and grimly awaited the onset at the gate. His suspense was brief. The gate went down with a crash, and when he saw the handful of defenders retire before the incoming flood of warriors led by Umi, Hakau retreated to the Mua with three or four of his attendants, where he resolved to defend himself to the death. The door of the Mua was scarcely barred before Umi reached it. A hundred warriors pressed forward, but he waved them back. He looked at Maokaleoleo, and the next moment the door was a mass of splinters. Umi resolutely stepped within. Kawalioku, the warrior priest, at his side. As he entered, with a hiss, Haiku made a thrust at him with his javelin. Umi caught and wrenched the weapon from his grasp, and was about to strike when Kawalioku stayed every uplifted hand by exclaiming, Hold! Let this be a sacrifice and not a murder. In the name of the gods, I slay him. With these words, the high priest drove his ihi through the heart of Haku, and he fell dying at the feet of Umi. Haku strove to speak, but his words were bitter and choked him. Bear him with respect to a couch, said Umi. He is the son of a king, and so let him die. His orders were obeyed, and Haku, the tyrant king of Hawaii, breathed his last as Umi turned and left the mua. The palace was now in po the possession of Umi, with its gods, its sacred emblems, its royal regalia, and all the paraphernalia of supreme authority. But he appreciated that much remained to be done, and that, too, without delay. The feather hunters would soon return from the hills and seashore, but they could be dealt with in detail as they arrived in small parties and were, therefore, not greatly to be feared. The distant chiefs summoned by the Lunapai of the dead king were the principal cause of anxiety. Some time during the next day they would begin to arrive with their quotas of warriors and Umi was not quite confident that they would accept the situation peacefully. 
To be prepared for any emergency, he offered his entire force to quarters within the palace grounds, dispatched parties to procure supplies of food, received the allegiance of the attendants and guards found in and around the royal mansion, and set out heralds to proclaim the death of Haku by the will of the gods and the assumption of sovereign authority by Umi, the son of Leola. The Kia Pu was discovered near the door, where it had been dropped by Haku. No one dared to touch it. It was recognized by a chief who had seen it before and who guarded it until Umi appeared. The chief pointed to the sacred shell, and with an exclamation of joy, Umi raised it to his lips and sounded a vigorous blast, which swept over the valleys and echoed through the hills with its old-time voice of thunder. All within the walls were startled. Kauli Oku approached, and Umi raised the shell and repeated the sonorous blast. It is not the breath of Umi, said the priest impressively. It is the voice of the gods proclaiming their approval of the work of this day. The body of Haku was removed to a small structure within the enclosure, where it was given in charge of his wife and mother, Kukulani and Pinia, and their attendants, to be prepared for burial and Kapakini, the sister of Haku and half-sister of Umi, mourned with them, but her grief was not great, for Haku had been unkind even to her. Before nightfall, the feather hunters began to come in, but the situation was made known to them on reaching the valley, and such of them as were not deterred by fear proceeded to the palace and gave their adherence to Umi, thus relieving him of some slight cause of apprehension, and considerably augmenting the strength of his little army. Umi's promise to his warriors was made good, for that night they ate their meat in peace within the palace walls at Waipio. All needed rest, but not one of them more than Umi himself. The night was dark, but the air was cool without, and after his evening meal Umi strolled out and threw himself down on a fold of kappa under the palms in front of the mansion. He was soon joined by Kaoli Oku, his trusty lieutenants Oma Kamanu and Pimaiwa and several chiefs of distinction. The events of the day were being discussed, and the possibilities of the morrow, when Maokaleoleo loomed up in the darkness like the shadow of a palm, and requested permission to approach the group. It was granted, of course, for the giant had proven himself to be one of the staunchest and most valuable of Umi's friends. But he was not alone. Behind him, and almost hidden by his burly form, Wat Kulamia. She wore a pau of five folds, and over her shoulders a light kihi of ornamented kappa. Her black hair fell below her waist, and a woven band of blossoms encircled her head.
By your instruction, said the giant, bowing before Umi, I sought out the woman who left with you beyond the hills today a curiously carved calabash, and acquainted her with your wish that she should come to you and claim it. But she feared to do so, because you are now the king of Hawaii. Were I the king of the eight Hawaiian seas, she should not fear, replied Umi. Seek and say to her. Let Umi speak the words himself, interrupted the giant, saying which, he advanced a few paces into a better light, and stepping aside, Kulamea stood revealed before the group. Kulamea, exclaimed Umi, rising. Kulamea, repeated Omakamau in astonishment, for he did not know before that his sister was in Waipio. What evil spirit prompted you to venture here at such a time as this? Do not chide her, Omakamau, said Umi, placing his hand tenderly upon the shoulder of the fair playmate of his youth. The triumph today is as much to her as it is to her brave brother, and no one could be more welcome. Omakamau was silent and Kulamea sank on her knees before Umi. He raised her to her feet and kissed her. Then, taking from his girdle and placing in her hands the calabash she had come to claim, he said, In the presence of all here, Umi returns this calabash to Kulamea, his wife. Then leading her to her brother, he continued, Give her attendance, and see that she is provided with all else that befits her station. Omakamau kissed his sister and led her into the mansion. During this scene, Maukaleoleo stood looking down upon the group with folded arms and an amused expression on his face. Perhaps I should have asked your consent, said Umi, smiling and looking into the face of the giant. Umi is now in a condition to take from his subjects without asking, pertinently replied the monster, but in this instance there seems to be no other claimant, and the title is unquestioned. And have I your approval as well? inquired Umi, more seriously, addressing Kaoleuku. Better than mine, replied the priest warmly. You have the approval of the gods, for in fulfilling your pledge to a simple and confiding woman, you have kept faith with them. The rest of the prominent events leading to and connecting with the ascension of Umi to the moiship of Hawaii will be very briefly referred to. As the district chiefs and their warriors arrived at Waipio in response to the call of the dead king, they accepted the changed conditions without protest and promptly tendered their allegiance to Umi. The second day after his death, Haiku's remains were quietly and without display taken to the hills and entombed, 
and the day following Umi was publicly anointed king of Hawaii in the presence of nearly 10,000 warriors. The games and festivities of the occasion continued for 10 days. The Akupau was placed in the temple of Pakalani, and at the death of the venerable Lianui, which occurred shortly after, Kawalioku, who was of the family Pau, was created high priest. Omakaumau and Pimawa became the confidential advisors of Umi, as well as his favorite military captains, and Maokaleoleo served in his many campaigns, his strength and prowess furnishing subjects for numerous strange stories still living in Hawaiian tradition. Black Clock Audio Tales is edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer in Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can contact us at pgttcm.com on Facebook at Black Clock Audio Tales and just look for us, Black Clock Audio Tales. Thank you.